0: Good morning, everybody. No lack of response from you. I can tell you're a church that's alive. You always say good morning when you're greeted. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Judges chapter 3. Thank the session for allowing me to hold up God's word before you this morning. I'm going to pick up uh, where I left off the last time I preached, which was Judges chapter 3 verse 6 so we're going to pick up in verse 7 down through verse 11 and I ask that you would follow along not because I read it but because of what it is it is the word uh, the rule and faith and practice of our God so please give attention as I read beginning in verse 7 of Judges chapter 3 and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave cushan rishithaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan rishathaim So the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word, and particularly for the historical narratives that you give us in the Old Testament. We pray, Father, that these would not be old stories because they're Old Testament stories, but they would be living stories in our lives because we know that your word tells us that all of your word is profitable for training in righteousness. And so you have a lesson for us to learn here, Father. We pray that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ that we might learn it well and as a result of the be more devoted to you in this coming week. And we ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. I like to watch TV. Uh, I like movies. I like mysteries, detective shows. And I've watched a good number of detective shows over the years, police dramas. And I've learned from that that the police usually look for a modus operandi in the stories. In other words, to catch the bad guys, they Look for a repeating pattern that the criminals use to carry out their capers. If uh, they hold up uh, convenience stores, then they stalk convenience stores in a given area hoping to catch the criminals. Or if they're dealing drugs to teenagers, then they know to go to the local high schools where they might be able to catch the criminals because of their modus operandi. Well, in studying the book of Judges, we should learn that God also has a modus operandi, although not with the negative uh, connotations of committing a crime. There is a repeating pattern uh, in the book of Judges, just like we see with bad guys on TV. If you remember from a couple of sermons ago, this repeating pattern is called the cycles of the judges. Cycles is just another word for repeating patterns, and each cycles of the major judges uh, includes five characteristics, maybe sometimes four characteristics, but the five characteristics are apostasy, which is the human inclination towards sin and falling away from the Lord. The second is punishment the angry reaction of God in chastening that sin. Then thirdly, outcry or the groaning and lament of those that are under God's chastening hand. And then fourthly, deliverance, God's rescue from the chastening that he has brought upon them. And then finally, fifthly, rest for the people. And in this passage before us, you are going to see the best example of this cycle Throughout the rest of the book of Judges, there is one of these five characteristics will occur in sequence, and each one of these five verses, in fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you might start at verse 7 and write apostasy, and then verse 8, punishment, and then verse 9, outcry, and then verse 10, deliver, and then verse 11, rest as I have written in my Bible. I don't like to write in my Bible, but I thought this was one time I would make the exception, and maybe you can do so too. Well, last time we finished the two introductions of the book of Judges, which starts at the very first verse in the very first chapter and goes down through chapter 3 to verse 6, and we saw how the Israelites steadily declined from their initial faithfulness carrying out the conquest of the land, taking over the land from the inhabitants, driving them out, killing them in most instances to finally being oppressed by the inhabitants and living in peace with the inhabitants, which is exactly what the Lord told them not to do. And further than that, They took the daughters of those inhabitants and gave them to their sons for marriage and gave their sons in marriage to their daughters, which further the Lord told them not to do with the greatest consequence that it could be that those daughters would lead them to worship other gods. And so that's what we have when we read chapter 3, verse 7, and the Lord set upon them a time of testing where he would no longer drive out the Canaanites and the other peoples of the land. And so this time we begin the main part of the book of Judges, and this section runs from this first verse that I read, verse 7, all the way through chapter, the end of chapter 16 with the story of Samson. And in verse 7 we see this repeating pattern begins with Israel's apostasy. They did evil in the sight of the Lord by forgetting the Lord and going after the idols, Baal and Asheroth. Here, forgetting doesn't mean that they simply had a slip in their memory, but they intentionally forgot about the Lord. They put the Lord aside and they went out and they embraced the idols of the people of the land. And in verse 8, the Lord responded in anger and sold the Israelites into oppression by Kushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. I'm tended to pronounce that word kushan rishathaim as just Cush from here on out. So you'll know what I mean when I say that. That's a mouthful to uh, have to say, except in places it becomes so important. So since Israel subjected themselves to serve the idols of Baal and Ashtaroth the Lord subjected them to a ruler who oppressed them. And the foreign ruler's name, Cushon rishathaim means dark, doubly wicked. Can you imagine a uh, mother and father naming their child dark, double wicked? So this was probably a nickname that the Israelites made up for Cush or that the author of the book of Judges made up It's not exact parallel, but you get a similar idea back when the wars against terrorism began for the United States back in 2003. Uh, There was this guy over in Iraq. He was the Iraqi minister of misinformation uh, called Baghdad Bob. That was the name that our troops made up for him, and it's probably likewise uh, the same for Kushan Rishithaiim. Not only does this appear to be a derogatory nickname from its literal meaning, his name even rhymes with the country over which he ruled. It says in my translation that he is the king of Mesopotamia, but Mesopotamia is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew. The original Hebrews uh, puts it as Aram Naharaim, which is if you have an NIV, it actually translates it into English that way and so the oppressor's full name and country pronounced together is Kusham Rishathaim from Aram Naharaim. Does that sound a little t- too coincidental to be someone's literal name? Well it gets even better than this. The name Naharaim is double rivers, indicating that the land that he ruled over was between two rivers. And so when you put together the name Rishathaim with Naharaim, you come out with Cusham, double wicked from Aram, double rivers. It seems obvious that this was a nickname that the Israelites made up for him. And so you can just hear them every time one of his representatives came around that they would sort of skip around laughing, elbowing one another. Oh, here comes Kushan, uh, uh, double bad from the land of double rivers. It was a joke to them. But whether this was insulting little barb that was made up or not, the obvious implication of Cushom Reshathayim's name was that he was a really bad dude. Now, Mesopotamia, or Aram Naharaim was the area located between the Euphrates and the harbor rivers in northern Mesopotamia, or roughly in northern Iraq this day. And thus, by the standards of ancient times, this king had to travel a great distance to oppress Israel. He had to have a really large army to be able to conquer and oppress and govern a people like that. And so he did have a very, very large army, and he was a very powerful king. One could even say about him that he was a world-class ruler, even though he's rather obscure in the Bible, not like the king of Babylon or the king of Assyria. We don't know a whole lot about him except he's in this one story. He was not like the city-states that were ruled over by the petty rulers that uh, Israel conquered when they came into the land. This guy had a very large kingdom. And so Daniel Block says in his commentary, quote, that he was the most powerful of all the enemies of Israel named in the book of Judges. And so God raised up a powerful man who was really wicked to bring his people low for their rebellion. Now, this oppression may not be like walking down the streets of gold. It may not bring up thoughts of that when we get to heaven or when we get to the new heavens and the new earth and all the lovely blessings that we're going to enjoy to that. But in the final analysis, the Israelites' oppression was truly God's blessing. Because if it causes them and us like them to lose our grip on Baal, then it's really for our best, spiritually speaking. For in the light of eternity, our spiritual lives are what really matter to God and what really matter should matter to us. And so temporary pleasure with rebellion may be very enjoyable to us for a season, but God refuses to allow his people to dwell in that state without doing something about it. And what he does about it is not to allow them to remain comfortable in such sin. In one of my previous churches, there was a guy there that... uh, he, didn't come, he was a member of the church, but he didn't come to church with any real regularity. And his wife accused him of adultery to the session. And so the session of the church went to meet with a man, both for exhorting him to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as Justin referred to and the blessing of the children, and also to find out about this charge of adultery. Well, he denied the charge of adultery. And he told them that, well, his job caused him to have to work on the Lord's Day. And so frequently he could not be there. Well, that was understandable. So the session, uh, since they couldn't prove the charge of adultery against him, they dropped it. They didn't carry out uh, any further discipline against him. But we found out later that during this time he was on drugs and he was stealing to help support his drug habit. And so not too long after the elders met with him, he got caught by the police stealing something out of the, somebody's car in the parking lot where he worked, and he ended up going to jail for a year. And while he was there, he sort of sobered up, spiritually speaking. Obviously, he got off his drug habit, and he repented. And he wrote a letter apologizing to the session for what he had done and saying that he had sinned against the Lord And so, as a professing member of the church, God had not allowed him to just continue not only his habit, but to continue in the sinful state, the flagrantly sinful state that he was in. And God brought him to repentance, and he became a faithful member of the church after that. And so, God inflicted misery is no picnic for us. But sometimes he brings us to repentance from our suffering, and it may be the best way he can reach into our deluded, rebellious souls. And it may be the only real sign of hope for people, even though they may be completely unaware of God's chastening them for it. Well, in verse 9, the Israelites cried out for deliverance, and the Lord raised up Othniel to be a deliverer for them. How many people in here have ever heard of Othniel? Not too many hands. So he's not the most famous judge. Well, what we're going to find out is he is the most faithful judge, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. So what can we learn about this man from this account? Almost nothing. However, we did see him, if you were here for one of my earlier sermons in chapter 1 in verses 12 through 13, it says in that chapter that he was related to Caleb by blood and by marriage. He eventually married Caleb's daughter, Aksah, and he did because he won her hand in marriage by becoming the leader that led the Israelites to victory in the conquest over a city named Debir. By winning this battle, Othniel earned the right to marry Aksa, and he showed that he had God's approval in conquering this city because he could not have conquered the city without God's help. Well, related to this, Othniel's marriage to Aksa, you may remember that Aksa is shown in chapter 1 as the ideal godly woman. She was the ideal godly woman because she wanted a good inheritance in the land of promise. Because a godly, a goodly inheritance was an indication of God's favor back then. You know, today, owning a piece of land doesn't mean anything about being a Christian. But back in the Old Testament, it was an indication of God's blessing upon you and your family to have a good piece of land and she was one that wanted it indicating as I said that she was a God-honoring woman and she is contrasted with the wicked Delilah later in the book of Judges and so since Othniel marries a faithful woman he's set in direct contrast to the Israelites in verse 6 who were intermarrying with pagan women who were the enemies of Israel and would lead their men into apostasy. And so Othniel, both by his previous courage and his God-honoring marriage, shows that he was a God-fearing man. Also, Othniel had also been with Israel in her initial days of faithfulness. He had been with the people who believed the old time religion, with the faithful tribe, with Judah. They were the ones that initially carried out God's mandate to conquer the land. And so Othniel had the right kind of experience in addition to his marriage and his courage. But Othniel was also the son of Kenaz, and like Caleb, he was not an Israelite by ethnicity. The Kenites were Gentiles, in fact, and so I do not know how Caleb and Othniel came to be with Israel, but what I do know is that he professed his faith in Israel's God. He became a proselyte to the tribe of Judah, and so though some in his day might consider Othniel's ethnic background too limiting to be in the forefront of God's service, God called this man, this courageous, experienced, God fearing man to action for the sake of his people. And God gave Kushan Rushithim into Othniel's hands, and Othniel prevailed over him and delivered Israel from oppression, and note that as part of this victory, there are no deceptive stratagems, no outside help, no special valves, and so on with Othniel, which we will see those sorts of things through the rest of the judges. And so it's a simple, straightforward victory through the power of God's Spirit given to his chosen deliverers. And it says in verse 10 that Othniel judged Israel, indicating that Othniel had the office of Uh, judge. Now, don't misunderstand what that means. A judge back during Othniel was not one who presided over court cases like it is in our day. But instead, he was a civil governor and a leader of Israel, particularly a a warrior in the land of Israel. And he also exercised some spiritual leadership by trying to turn the people of Israel back to their God. If you go back in chapter 2, verse 17, you'll see that. And so Othniel delivered Israel, and the land of Israel had rest for 40 years and a minute or so ago I said that this story is simple it's so simple in fact it's almost boring by comparison with the other stories or the cycles of the judges and so what can we learn uh, from judges by comparing this story with the others well one unique uh, detail is that there is no mention of a character flaw in Othniel This doesn't mean that Othniel was sinless, but uh, nothing is said in this account to indicate that Othniel's motives or his devotion to the Lord was anything less than what it should have been. Without exception, all the subsequent deliverers will all have something negative about them. And through this, God wants us to see that as Israel declined more and more as the book progresses, so do her deliverers who were products of that decline. This is made clear when the initial ideal judge, Othniel, is compared to the opposite climactic story of Samson, who was the worst judge ethically. How many people have ever heard of Samson? See, Samson's probably the most famous judge, but he was the worst judge, and we'll see why. You have to come back. If I ever get to that story, you have to come back to hear it to find out why. So Othniel serves as an example to us of a spirit-led man who, when called, obeyed and did what God wanted him to do. There is no record of haggling uh, with God by Othniel like there was with Gideon or will be with Gideon in the story of Judges, or like Moses did, or of running in the opposite direction like Jonah did, or being too timid like Timothy is in the New Testament. Othniel is presented as one who rose to the occasion according to the Lord's will in the book of Judges. And likewise, we should also rise to the occasion when called upon the Lord to do what we need to do, spiritually speaking. That doesn't mean that we'll be ruler over a nation. It doesn't mean that we will lead an army. But we should do the things that God tells us to do in his word. We should be good fathers and mothers raising our children in God's ways, husbands and wives loving one another good workers at our occupations and at home, servants to others around us, and generally people of integrity. And each of us has received a spiritual gift. God commands us to use that spiritual gift in his church. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Fellas, let me give you a little clue about how to be a good father. I have lived a lot of years, and I have had children, so I have some experience being able to tell you. If you don't know how to to help your children, teach your children the ways of the Lord, go get you a Bible storybook. And most every night, when they go to bed, lay down with them and read it for 15 minutes. It has a wonderful effect on children. And you say, well, I don't know about it. All you got to do is be able to read, okay? You don't have to know the Bible from front to back and so on and so forth. That's what I did with my kids. It turned out exceptionally well. I'm not bragging. I'm just recommending it to you because I realize that us men, we generally don't know how to do these things real well, especially if we're young in the faith. So if you have young children when they're two, three years old, Begin doing that. You don't. Have, if you missed out when there were two or three, start doing it now. Another feature of this narrative is that there is a lack of historical and literary detail. Although for the first time there is a particular enemy named and a particular judge, there are no plot expansions or developments, no dialogue, no reported speech of any kind, no dramatization of events, no scenic presentation, and so on, All of these things we will see as we move through the book of Judges. And consequently, their absence here is significant. But what we do find present in this passage is the repeating pattern of the cyclical statements. Just like I said, there's one for each of the five verses that we read in Judges chapter 3. And so, after this story, these framework statements are present in the major judge cycles to one degree or another, but they're obscure to some extent by other historical aspects of each story. So, in presenting his material this way, the author establishes the model before using traditions and other tidbits, which may be interesting storytellings, but make it more difficult to recognize this thre- theme through all of the stories. And the location of this bare pattern here at the beginning of the cycles indicates that this is to be the standard against which all the remaining stories are to be measured. And the last uniqueness of the Othniel account is that in no other judge cycle is God's involvement so explicitly stated and easy to see at every stage in the cycle. And because of this, in no other cycle will God's glorification be so complete for in every other cycle there will be something or numerous things that distract the reader from fully appreciating God's glorification like for example how strong Samson is that sort of diminishes when he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey that sort of diminishes God's glory because God doesn't fully get the glory for that in our minds that he should get And so we see explicitly here God's involvement clearly. And if God was involved that way in Othniel's time, so he is also in our time. You know, we're people that live by our senses and by what we see, and we always have an explanation for what's going on around us. Well, this bad thing happened, you know, the tree limb fell off, and it hit me on the foot, and it broke my foot, and all that kind of stuff. But do we recognize that God is behind all those events? And I don't mean just the negative ones, but I mean the good ones. Because God brings everything into our lives. And so we should give him glory for those things. Because like the Israelites, he has delivered us from oppression in the person of his son. In Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus indicated that among other things, he came to set at liberty those who are oppressed by sin and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, not the negative year of the Lord. And so, because of Jesus' righteous life that is imputed to us when we exercise faith in Him, and because of His death on the cross, we are reconciled to God. God accepts us. He brings us into His bosom. He calls us His friends. And further than that, He calls us His children. And we have the privilege of being in on all his plans and knowing what he's doing in the world, at least in a general way, that he has revealed to us in his word. And this gives us reason to love the one who gave himself for us. This gives us reason to rejoice that we are no longer subject to the bondage of sin as we once were like the Israelites who were subject to the bondage of the king of Mesopotamia. And this gives us reason to give him thanks all the remainder of our lives because he has delivered us, he has befriended us, he has loved us. And let us therefore not live as those who follow Baal and Asheroth but as those who follow the living, all-powerful, and merciful Christ, let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love, for your help, for your countless kindnesses each day to us, preserving us, protecting us, and those that we care about. And we pray, Father, that we would read these stories with Uh, your eyes, understanding them with your eyes. Help us to see us in some ways through these passages because as you dealt with the Israelites, so you deal in like manner with us today. Help us, Father, that we may go forth from this place this week a little more sanctified, a little more devoted to you, loving you a little more thoroughly. And we give thanks, Father, for all that you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen.